At Online MedEd, we walk you through every topic in detail, so you're ready for the boards and the wards. In this lecture on burns, what I want you to get out of this is to recognize how you identify and treat thermal burns, that is, in the way of grading them by degree, and then fluid resuscitation and some general management tools, and then also know about the different types of burns other than thermal and what you might do special for those. Let's start off by talking about the different degrees of burns. You've got first degree burns, second degree burns, and third degree burns. First degree burns I want you to see as essentially sunburns. You've probably had one of these. In first degree burns, the epidermis is intact. And all you get is a little erythema, a little warmth, and a little bit of pain. And you've probably taken care of yourself after having a sunburn after being exposed to the sun. And it goes away in its own and there's nothing special you have to do for it. In fact, first degree burns don't count. When it comes to grading the severity of someone's burn in the way of body surface area or giving volume resuscitation based on how much is burned, first degree burns don't count. And that's because the epidermis is still intact. The integumentary system protects against infection and helps regulate heat and fluid. So first degree burns basically don't matter. They matter to the patient, but they don't matter to you, the treating physician. Second degree burns are a little worse than that. They are partial thickness. You've broken the epidermis. And here you still have the erythema warmth and pain, but you have increased pain. And now the thing that separates second degree from first degree is the presence of blisters. So if you see a blister, that's a second degree burn. Because the epidermis is compromised, infection and fluid become an issue. Third degree burns burn the skin away. This is a full thickness burn. You're through the dermis and you've got muscle and bone exposed. The thing is, since you've burned away the skin entirely, there's no pain. And what you get instead is a white, charred region of flesh. But because the burn was so bad at that point, the surrounding tissue is going to be affected in some way. So this is always surrounded by second degree. First, second, and third degree burns. Let's come off thermal burns and talk about some of the other types of burns first. Then we'll come back to burn management in general. The first type of burn I want to talk to you about is chemical. And chemical burn comes when someone gets exposed to either an alkali or an acid. And alkali are way worse. And there's two types of things you might encounter. Someone who has burned their skin or eyes. And someone who has accidentally or intentionally ingested a chemical. Now, if you've got something on your skin... The chemist in you might say, well, this is an acid or a base. I can neutralize the acid and base by adding a weak thing of the opposite side. That way it won't burn anymore. You never buffer. 
When you do that, you convert the chemical burn into a thermal burn because the process of neutralizing an acid or a base is thermophilic and it creates a very vigorous reaction. So don't buffer and instead you irrigate. And you irrigate 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 and you don't stop irrigating until everything is gone. If you ingest it, same rule applies, never buffer. Same thing's going to happen, you're going to get a thermal burn. One of the things you might think of is inducing emesis. Never induce emesis because that gives the chemical a second pass. And you might think, well, if it's in there, i got to get it out, so maybe I'll put an NG tube down and do a lavage. We never do an NG tube either because that's going to induce emesis and you're going to essentially perforate the esophagus. That's what you care about, is the esophagus. So what you do do for ingested chemicals is, is monitor them. You do serial exams, and eventually you're going to get an endoscopy to, to grade them. Serial exams mean you're going to get repeated chest x-rays to make sure there's not free air in the mediastinum. You're going to keep them NPO, and you're going to watch and see what happens. That's weird, because if you know that they've ingested a toxic chemical, you're not going to do anything to get it out of their system. You're just going to watch and wait and intervene surgically if something goes wrong. NPO, EGD, eventually, and you grade the severity. We talk more about this in the esophageal lectures in the medicine videos under caustic ingestion. Another special type of burn is going to be the respiratory burn. And this is what happens when someone gets hot stuff into their respiratory tract. So people who are going to be at risk for this are going to be those who are in a closed fire, that is, they're in the building when the fire started, or people who have been near explosions. And this will mean an inhalation of smoke or chemicals. And inhalation injuries are dangerous because right now, they may not look that bad, but the burn is going to respond with edema, and when they get edematous, their airway might close off. So you want to intervene before that happens. So people you should be worried about have strider, indicative of upper airway compromise, or those who've got soot at the nares or have singed nares. Chances are, if they've got hot enough to burn the hairs of their nose, some of it probably got into the back of their throat. So not everyone needs immediate intubation, but these people need to be monitored closely. Monitoring their oxygen and their peak flows. A deterioration means need to prophylactically intubate them. And if you need to be sure that they don't need to be intubated, you will eventually do a bronchoscopy. So anytime you think the airway is going to be lost, intubate them. If you monitor them with peak flows and oxygen assessments, if they start to deteriorate, intubate them. If you do the bronch and you see a bunch of edema, intubate them. Intubation prophylactically is much better than reactive because once the edema closes off the airway, the only way to get into the trachea is through a crike or a tracheostomy rather than an ET tube. Electrical burns, a little bit you've got to know about these. Electrical burns occur in people who have been struck by lightning and those who have touched high voltage wires. 
Now, electrical burns are going to enter one place and leave another. And you are certainly not going to ground the electricity, so you'll have both an entrance and an exit wound. And the two principles you have to follow when you're considering electrical burns is that the electricity is going to follow the path of least resistance. And when you pass current through a conductor, it heats up. What am I talking about? Well, the cardiovascular system is a conduction network. And so if you get hit by lightning or touch high voltage wires, the reason why people die is the arrhythmia. Well, the thing you need to be concerned about for someone who survives a lightning strike is what happens when you heat up the resistor. That is, the bones conduct electricity, but when lightning passes through somebody, the bones heat up. And they heat up and cause a thermal burn of the muscles next to them. Their skin looks fine. You can't tell that there's a muscular burn underneath. And these burned muscles can lead to rhabdo. So you need to go actively looking for it. So the right answer is what is the next step in someone who's been struck by lightning and is alive? Get a CK level. The CK level is elevated, get a creatinine. You might also get the clues of rhabdo, like hematuria, but no red blood cells. That's the myoglobin. So if you see anything along those lines, start thinking rhabdo, because someone who survived an electrical strike doesn't really need any treatment, but they might need IV fluids and mannitol to treat the rhabdo. Now, one more piece of electrical burns that might tip you off, that is the nervous system itself is an electrical conduction system, and what you might get is a posterior dislocation of the shoulder. That is to say, the nerves are conducted and can contract the muscles with such a great force that they dislocate the shoulder posteriorly. Only two things really do that. That's going to be seizure and lightning strikes. So if you see posterior dislocation of the shoulder, still think about muscular burns and checking a CK for rhabdo. One special consideration you need to have for any type of burn is whether or not it is circumferential. And the problem with circumferential burns is that it compromises the vascular supply. This is what happens in a normal burn. This is an arm. Here's the blood vessel running through it. No problem. And then they get burned. Regular burn. As this SHR forms, there's a lot of edema. It pushes the skin away. The SHR comes kind of comes off the top of the, the skin. And whatever it does to the artery underneath, there's no backstop. So it just pushes the artery aside. But now imagine what would happen if you had instead a circumferential burn. One that went all the way around the arm. Here's that blood vessel coming in, and initially it would be no problem, right, because the SR begins to, to scar down. But as it forms, it's going to grow in, as it has nowhere to go, because on the other side is just another SR. And eventually it's going to close off and compromise the vascular supply to the extremity below. They have nothing. Then the arm dies. The diagnosis of a circumferential burn is going to be clinical. And if you simply removed the pressure, then you would remove the disease. So the treatment is to do uh, a cut the SR. And it's cool because the SR doesn't have any sensation, so you can just do it right at the bedside. You alleviate the obstruction, and all of a sudden, the blood vessel returns.
Okay, these are some of the special considerations you need to make. Knowing when to refer to a burn center is also important. Important stuff. Hands, face, genitals, refer to a burn center. Lots of surface area burned, greater than 10%, burn center. Circumferential burns, burn center. And then you have to be able to know how to calculate the body surface area and then be able to resuscitate these patients. You do that with the Parkland formula. The Parkland formula is going to combine the rule of nines and 50, 50, 8, and 16. You'll see what this means in a minute. The Parkland formula is an estimate of how much fluid someone's going to need in the first 24 hours. The idea is if you have loss of the integumentary system, second and third degree burns, you can't regulate insensible water losses and you can't regulate your temperature. So you have lost fluid that you're going to need to put back in the first 24 hours. The rule of nines are only using second and third degree burns. Here's our model. You need to look at this guy from the front and the back, and you'll know which way is front and back based on the positioning of the hands and feet. All right, the rule of nines goes something like this. The head, it's worth nine. The front of the chest is worth nine, and the back of the chest is worth nine. The front of the abdomen and pelvis is worth nine, and the back of the abdomen and pelvis is worth nine. The front of each leg is worth nine, and the back of each leg is worth nine. And here's where the rule of nine falls apart. Each arm in its entirety is worth nine, which means that each side of an arm is four and a half. Let's add them up. Two arms, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. That's ninety-nine percent. One percent goes to the genitalia. You calculate the percent of body surface area burned. Rule of nines, second and third degree only. The Parkland formula is four times the kilogram body weight times the percent body surface area burned, it, that's either second degree or third degree. This is how much you need to give in 24 hours. You give that amount of fluid 50% in the first eight hours, and then 50% in the ensuing 16 hours. Rule of nines, 50, 50, 8, and 16. And then in general, if you're going to manage people with burns, Early movement and early grafting are key. It hurts to move. It hurts to have wound changes, and it hurts to get a graft. But you need to encourage patients to move and then adequately control their pain. You're generally going to do that with IV analgesics. If they move, they get function back. If they don't, they scar down. And then if you've got really bad burns, you might want to keep that from getting infected, so infection prophylaxis is generally going to be with antibiotics. Topical mupirocin or silver sulfadiazine. 
oral antibiotics, oral steroids don't count. Now, if you don't have lots burned away or don't have nasty-looking wounds, you don't have to debride, you don't have to do antibiotics. You could just do simple topical emollients and keep it clean. Most of the time, the patients that you're going to deal with on the vignette who are unhospitalized are the people who are doing poorly. Debridement, grafting, and topical antibiotics help the person heal. Rule of nine is formula. Know the difference between first, second, and third degree burns. And then know what you need to know about the details of each different type of burn. Chemical burn is all about irrigation. Unless you swallowed it, then it's about watching and waiting and hoping it doesn't get that bad. Respiratory burns means intubate sooner than later, especially if you identify the airway could be exposed to thermal injury. Electrical burns, look for rhabdo, treat the rhabdo. Circumferential burns, you're going to cut off the vascular supply.